my welcome to you all. And uh, for those of you that are visiting with us today, my name is Greg Durenberger. I'm the senior pastor of Emmaus Road Church. And I want to invite you to turn to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. And we're going to be giving our attention today to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Disappointment with ourselves is one of the things that to some degree we all have in common. Some of my own self-disappointment is relatively trivial. You know, I, I'm, I'm relatively weak when it comes to doing basic home repairs. Uh, not a financial wizard when it comes to investing. I, I recognize that had I truly applied myself more fully early on, I, I may have made more of myself. Some of my self-disappointment is worse than trivial and falls into the category of neurotic self-absorption. I come home from 10 days of vacation, I look at myself in the mirror and I go, donuts a day. Were you thinking eating three donuts a day? Yeah. You know, at my age, you know, I'm, I'm, so, I'm way past wishing for nicknames like Sun God or, or Bringer of Fire, Thunbar the Giant, but you know, I just want my pants to fit. But some of my self-disappointment, probably like yours, runs deeper. I still love Jesus too little, and I sin too much. In fact, it seems that the older that I get, the more I realize how great a sinner I actually am and how much greater a sinner I am than I ever thought I was. When I was a kid, one of my favorite cartoon characters was Popeye the Sailor Man. Now, I'm, my assumption is, is that Popeye is unfam unfamiliar with about two-thirds of you. Um, I, I think the reason that I liked Popeye is because he reminded me so much of my dad. He was, a, he was simple, he was a sailor, he had tattoos, um, he smoked a pipe, he loved his wife, olive oil, in a manly kind of a way. And like my dad, his forearms were larger than his biceps. Um, but, but one of the things about Popeye that made me sad is when he was frustrated or wasn't sure what to do or he felt inadequate, he would simply say, this was kind of like his favorite go-to phrase, I am what I am. And he said it as a kind of explanation for his shortcomings. Saying, I am what I am. It, it doesn't anticipate much of, if anything, uh, in the way of growth or of change. It's, it's like we say today, it is what it is. You know, don't get your hopes up. Don't expect too much. Not going to change. Saying, I am what I am 
does not leave much room for a shot at getting to be what I am not. It's just what I, I am what I am. And, and isn't that the sad cry of the human race? N namely, the struggle between self-disappointment and hope. Isn't this the sorry resignation of a culture that bet it all on self-help, but now feels better about itself? Just, just be true to, to your true self, your real self. Real transformation is so far out of reach. It just, it just is what it is. I am what I am. And I'd appreciate it if you would just accept me for, for that. In this ancient letter to, written by the Apostle Paul to disciples of Jesus in the city of Rome, we are introduced to a framework for thinking about personal development and transformation that they just sends shockwaves through the worldview of the culture in which we live. Paul would not accept I am what I am, or it is what it is. God's saving power is too great. His mercies are far too massive to simply leave us the way we are. So join me, giving attention to God's holy and authoritative word in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And I want to invite you to stand. It's because we read this book like no other book. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. May the Spirit of God move and inspire reverence and produce obedience and engender hope through what he has said. Let's pray. Lord, uh, it's, to, it's to those who are humble and contrite and tremble at your word with great regard for you and all that you've said. It's to those you would look and uh, not just see, but impart the sense of your presence, the empowering work of your presence, the life, the grace, the means to be different, to, to be transformed. And so we're looking to you now. And would you be exalted, Lord, by affirming, confirming, demonstrating the reality of all that you have said and promised to do in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
At Emmaus Road Church, we hold fast to what we refer to as the functional centrality of the gospel. The functional centrality of the gospel. That is, we hold firmly to a conviction that we must not simply believe the gospel message, but that the gospel message must be carefully and consistently connected to the real issues of people's lives. Or to say it another way, we believe that the gospel works. The gospel gets things done. The gospel makes things happen. It functions. And we believe that the greatest need in the church today is for gospel doctrines in which we believe to actually function for the sake of the transforming of our lives. We believe this because of what Paul writes in his letter to the Romans. For 11 chapters, Paul's been setting forth these gospel truths. Romans chapters 1 through 11, we hear not only the gospel message, we hear the implications of the gospel message. For example, in Romans chapter 5 verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, that's the gospel message, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the gospel message, justification by grace through faith, has a practical implication. Peace, actual peace in relationship with God. Another example would be Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the gospel has a practical implication for those who are joined to Jesus. No condemnation. God no longer condemns you on account of your countless sins. Or Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. There's the gospel message. Here's the implication. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The, the, the gospel doctrine of God giving up his son as a pure and holy sacrifice to cleanse us from our sins. It has a practical implication. God will also graciously, generously, as we just sang, give us every other spiritual blessing we need as well. Gospel doctrines have gospel implications, and that is a big, big deal. But there's more. The message of the gospel has more than doctrinal implications. The message of the gospel is meant to do things cause things, change things in our daily lives. Paul writes in Philippians 1.27, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, the message of the gospel also has behavioral implications. And that's clear from the shift of focus between Romans chapter 11 and Romans chapter 12. Romans chapters 1 through 11, the focus is on the message of the gospel and its doctrinal implications. In Romans chapters 12 through 15, now the focus is on the behavioral 
implications, the functional centrality of the gospel. The gospel is not only the power of God for salvation, the gospel is the power of God for transformation. And that's made explicit in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul writes, Therefore, therefore, it's that critical connecting word, in light of the gospel, in light of its message, in light of its truth, in light of its doctrinal implications, therefore, now, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. So Popeye the Sailor Man was one of my favorite cartoon characters as a boy. One of the cartoon interests of my sons when they were boys was a group of teenage superheroes called the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. It's probably like, you know, unknown to about two-thirds, another two-thirds of you. <laughs> um, but the key premise of the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers was their ability to morph. Ordinarily, they were just normal adolescents, but as needed, they, they could access a power beyond themselves to become martial arts heroes for justice. And their rallying cry in moments of crisis was, it's morphin' time! And they would be transformed with this ability to do remarkable things. And you know, who, who would have ever dreamed that this like, low-budget Japanese cartoon show would succeed in bringing into our daily vocabulary the primary imperative of Romans chapter 12, verse 2? Metamorphusa. It's morphin time. Be transformed. If I remember rightly, and, and you know, everybody in my household would say, often I do not. Uh, if I remember rightly, I, I believe it became kind of a standard phrase that we would use if someone was in need of like some serious attitude adjustment. It's morphin time. Somebody's moping and pouting, feeling sorry for themselves. It's morphin' time. Somebody's crabby, naggy, being lazy. It's morphin' time. I don't want to do my homework. It's morphin' time. It, it, it's a fairly accurate translation of the main point of Romans 12, 1 and 2. You should try it in your house. It's morphin' time. Be, be transformed. But it is a nuanced verb form. And though it is in the present active tense, it is also in the passive voice. So it's not transform, it's not change, it's be transformed, be changed. It involves responsible action on our part, but it also requires something contingent on us, something contingent first changing us. It means be being continuously transformed. And that something which makes our transformation an actual reality is the powerful working of the mercies of God. The gospel power that works out our personal transformation. It, 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 it is the massive, the massive mountain range of the mercies of God. The power by which the mighty morph and power rangers morphed 
was located in the morpher. <laughs> um, it, 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 the morpher was just like this little kind of a belt buckle-like looking gizmo, you know. And, but without the morpher, there, there was no morphing. The power by which Christians are transformed is by the mercy of God. And so, of course, apart from God's massive, mighty, manifold mercies, there's no transformation. Paul writes in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by, on the basis of, or according to, or in accordance with, the mercies of God. And of course, that therefore connects Paul with what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2 to what came before. And if you remember Ryan's sermon on, on Romans eleven twenty five 25 to 36, you know that the point of the immediate preceding context is all about God's profound mercies. Romans eleven thirty, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy. <laughs> that is astonishing. The existence of evil does not prove God is powerless. The presence of evil, the hardness of men's hearts, proves that God is more powerful than we could imagine. Remember that? Romans eleven thirty two. God has consigned all to disobedience that they may have, that he may have mercy on all. God is more merciful than we could have ever dreamed. God's mercy is the greatest thing, the best thing, the most powerful thing. Not the free self-determination of man, remember? Only fallen creatures experience mercy and forgiveness. Remember that? God's not trying to save as few as possible. The only way to be made right with God is to be a recipient of God's mercy. So, loved ones, Romans 9 through 11 is just this massive, majestic mountain range of God's mercy. And it is God's mercy that overshadows evil. It, it is triumphing over evil. It is God's mercy that raises dead souls to newness of life. It is God's mercy that plucks us from the road to eternal destruction. It is God's mercy that triumphs over God's judgment and wrath. And it's not just one mercy. It is mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Mercies. And it's all mercy, all these mercies, since they are from God, they never come to an end. God's mercies do not have an expiration date. God's mercies are not limited to Sundays and holy holidays. God's mercies are new every morning. And on the basis of these mercies, there is sovereign, divine, infinite power to transform the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we serve, the way we love, the way we care, the way we work, the way we order our households, the way we parent, the way we pray, the way we worship, the way we respond to the sin that remains within us, and the way we respond to the sins that are committed against us. And therefore, by virtue of the reality of that, that 
the divine power resident in all those mercies, God's mercies, according to God's infinite and omnipotent mercies, be being transformed. Loved ones, listen. It's morphin time. <laughs> it's morphin time, and by the power of God, we shall morph indeed. So what does that look like? What is it that God empowers us to do that serves as the agent by which we are transformed? What's our morpher? According to Romans 12.2, the key we hold to our transformation is the intentional and active steps we take to recalibrate, renew our thinking. Paul writes, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In, in a collaboration with uh, remaining sin in our lives and in collaboration with the, you know, the supernatural spiritual adversary, the devil, the world asserts formidable influence in opposition to our transformation. It goes without saying that we live in a world characterized by the most crazy-making mindset. A week ago, I was, I was in a fine dining restaurant in Charleston, South Carolina. I went to the restroom area, and I found there was only one door. And on, on the one door, there were these images, little images that I'd never seen before. They were, they were little figures with a circle for a head, and then there was this, this big square box. I looked for, you know, the word men or women, or, you know, sometimes there's a slash and there's both. Not there. And I walked in, and there's a, a, a very nicely dressed female coming out of one stall and a well-dressed gentleman walking into another stall and two other women washing their hands at the sinks. And I stopped and, and uh, I looked back at that door and uh, with my face apparently displaying some confusion. And one of, the, one of these women looks at me and she shakes her head and she goes, I know. As if to say, it is what it is. The mindset of the world is, I am what I am. And the gravitational pull toward conformity to that mindset is extraordinary. And that's why actual transformation in our lives depends on God's incomparably great mercies. Transformation in our lives is accomplished through an ongoing recalibration of our mindset to the framework of God and, and His good. Change on our part 
you know, it, it begins up here. So think about it. You know, we, we fix our minds on something. It might be something that we want. It might be something we don't have. It might be something that happens, something that's happened to us. Whatever our mind is fixed on generates an emotion. And emotions generate behaviors, reactions, responses. So whether they're reactions, responses, words, decisions, attitudes, they're all contingent upon what we think. And therefore, one of the fiercest allies of our worldly discontent and sinful behaviors is what is introduced into our imaginations. That's why the things that we read matter. The things we watch matter. The things we listen to matter. Curriculums matter. Interpretations matter. Teachers matter. Truth matters because thinking matters. But the mind is more than just the seat of our thinking or our thoughts. It is the nerve center of our worldview. And loved ones, the transformation, the morphing Paul has in view involves more than simply changing our minds. It involves a worldview made new. I had a conversation, it was about a year ago now, with a couple. They, they professed to be followers of Jesus. They were not married. They were sleeping together. And, and um, I just asked, um, tell me your thought process on this. I wasn't trying to be provocative or anything, but um, this, explain to me your thinking. And, and their response was, that's just what couples do. According to who? According to the mindset of the world. That's who. You see, our brains don't simply have the ability to perceive and detect. That's one thing. Our minds have a posture. Our minds have a disposition. Our minds have a bent. And the natural bent is toward conformity to the world. And that bent is what must be renewed. And the bent or the disposition, disposition of our mindset is made new by God's word and by the working of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes to Titus, Titus chapter 3 verses 4 and 5. It says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but, here's, here's the power, according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal, this is the same word as in Romans 12 too, by the renewal of of the Holy Spirit. So you see, it's, it's the Holy Spirit by whom we are transformed. The Spirit of God renews our minds by opening the eyes of our hearts to the glories of God in the face of Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, being morphed into the same image 
from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So, so what part do we play then in morphing time? So loved ones, listen. I, I think we all get this here at Emmaus Road Church. Read your Bible from cover to cover. Give yourself to the discipline that we share in our discipleship huddles of revisiting the word that you hear on Sunday. Revisit this word. Let it dwell in you richly. Revisit this word and be sure you are applying this word and dwelling in this word richly before you jump to another word. Before you jump into another study or another sermon or another book, make the habit of meditating on the word of Christ and his person and his perfections. And loved ones, then pray and pray and pray and pray. Don't just read, just pray and pray and pray. So that, Romans 12 two, by testing, seeking, pursuing, the renewing, the recalibrating of your mindset, you may then discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. You do this. You do this standing on this, these mountains of God's mercy. Do this in reliance on the massive, towering mercies of God, and you will be transformed. Now, where is all this going? See, Paul has no intention of us merely just exchanging the world's moral standards of behavior for God's moral standards of behavior. It's way more than that. It's way more than stop doing this, do this. What is the purpose of our being transformed? I think most simply... It's, it's so that our whole lives would communicate how much God is worth. By being transformed so that your entire life is an expression of worship. Verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's a, a rather remarkable analogy. In, in Jewish temple worship, the, um, the sacrifice was, well, it was always the first and the best, it was always the most valuable. It was always the most costly. Um, and so, it had to be perfect. And people would bring this sacrifice that was perfect, the best of the flock, and offer it. And it was, you know, the offering was always a dead body. You know, you killed the animal. 
It was not a living animal. It was a dead body at that point. The sacrifice, the dead body was laid on the altar, and some parts of it were burned. Some parts the priests would eat. But the end, that was it. That was the end of the animal. No more. <laughs> Imagine putting you know, your tithe, the 10% of your paycheck, into the offering. You're never going to see it again, but... But imagine it just being disappearing. Knowing it was done away with. Clearly, that's not the end that Paul has in mind. He has already put forward this idea of presenting ourselves to God in Romans. Romans chapter 6, verse 13, for instance, says... Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So, so that means your bodies, your, your arms, your legs, your hands, your feet, your mouths, your minds, every part of your body is to be an instrument played to the praise of God. Or, according to Romans 12, a sacrifice. Not just living, not just breathing, existing, but moving around, doing stuff for the purpose of holy. An acceptable praise to God. And the purpose of, of a renewed mind is so that we might test and discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect, most valuable, most to be treasured, most to be valued. Do you know what is of ultimate value? We present ourselves to a lot of good things. We offer ourselves, our lives, our bodies to a good many things, and a lot of them are good. And some aren't so good. But the point of being transformed is that we might effectively and faithfully test. We can test it, we can discern. Okay, that's of greatest value. That's not as great a value. And then we present our bodies, our arms, legs, hands, feet, fingers, toes, knees, elbows, whatever, teeth, tongues, eyes, ears, every member... To God, every day, as an expression of the kind of spiritual worship of which God is worthy. And so, my dear friends, on the basis of God's mind-blowing kindnesses, in planning our deliverance, in working out our rescue, in dying in our place, in forgiving all our sins, in adopting us as his children, in declaring us innocent, in pronouncing us righteous, in loving us eternally, and giving us the most precious gift of his Holy Spirit, and renewing our minds. It's morphin' time. It's morphin' time. Be being transformed so that God may be glorified. Let's pray.
Lord, we want to thank you for your mercies. So massive, so manifold, so mountainous. You have been so undeservedly gracious to us. We just bring nothing to the table and you bring it all. As we ponder that, I pray that it would produce a mindset, framework. May it produce a calling out to you. May it produce a people whose bodies are bodies are being offered to you. That our bodies would not be offered mainly to what is most acceptable to others, what is most pleasing to the world, what is most satisfying to our own appetites, but what is ultimately of value acceptable to you, pleasing to you, magnifying to you. And so we, we would sing. Pray that our singing would be a living sacrifice. Pray that our conversations with one another would be a living sacrifice. I pray that our recreating and our playing and our eating together would be a living sacrifice. I pray that our, when we go to work, our work, our vocation would be a living sacrifice. I pray that our parenting might be a living sacrifice. I pray that our, the way we order our households, it would be a living sacrifice. It would be, it would be an expression of how valuable and to be treasured above all else you truly are. We're relying on you for the working of your Holy Spirit to recalibrate that bent, that disposition of our thinking so that we can be discerning and testing and approving. So be glorified, O oh God. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.